we are going through select passages of Serectus 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth while he was away. And the series, it's a church life series, so we do church life series uh, every now and then with different emphasis, and this time the emphasis is on being forged by suffering. Doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? However, uh, we need to take this seriously because we live in a broken world that's messed up with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And thank God the Bible is realistic about it and has something to say about it. You know, I, I, uh, I'm reading through um, a book, a very, very, I finished it, very popular book. And it's by a clinical psychologist. And he addresses suffering every now and then. I was wondering, he started bringing up suffering in the book. And I'm really curious about what kind of answers he would bring uh, to the reader. And he talks about the suffering in the world with war and with terrorism and, and with, with sickness, with, with cancer, uh, with school shootings. And, and he went on and on and on about how horrible it is. And he says, if you think through that, you'll come to the logical conclusion that in the end, there is no real cure for suffering. If you play it out and you think, okay, if this, then I'll do that. If this, then I'll do that. If this, then I'll do this. You will eventually come to the logical conclusion that you have to kill yourself or kill everybody else and then yourself. And then he says, so here's the solution. Don't think about it. That's what he said. Don't think about it. He said, instead, notice. And when he said notice, he said, notice the good things that are happening in your life. You know, like, like kittens and flowers and, and, you know, the baby laughing and, and stuff like that. Which, basically, all he is offering is denial so that you can function from day to day. If you think about it too much, you will shut down. And so... Killing yourself and killing other people, that's no good, so don't think about it. Notice the good things in life. Thank God the Apostle Paul and the writers of the Scripture don't leave us with no answers. Don't leave us with denial. We need hope. We need a very real hope. And when it comes to Christianity, hope is not just wishful thinking. It's a promise. It's a promise that God will save his people and bring them through and that one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we don't have to be in denial about it. We don't have to sweep stuff under the rug. We don't have to pretend like everything's fine when it's not because you and I know better. Now, 2 Corinthians addresses suffering. One major point of suffering in life is strained relationships, right? Somebody close to you, the relationship goes bad, it can rip your heart out. Well, I want to talk about strained relationships, not just in general, but also specifically within the church. God has called the church to love him, to love our neighbors, and to love each other. And when it comes to loving each other, we, we are called to love each other, not in just some kind of... Um, you know, feel-good, kumbaya kind of a way, but to love each other as, as family. 
And the church family is called to be a community of grace. Now, doesn't that sound good? A community of grace? We can all, we can all like hold hands in a circle and sing around a campfire. It only takes a spark to get the fire going. And soon all those around can warm, it's too is glowing. Sounds so nice, right? Well, let me mess that picture up for you. And then we'll fix it. A community of grace basically is a group of people who need grace. And for a reason. The reason a group of people need grace is because the group of people are sinners and we can't make that right on our own. And as sinners, we will sin against each other. That's what happens. You will, you will sin against others. And when you sin against somebody, you not only need grace from God, but you will also need sacrificial grace from the person that you sinned against. In fact, there's a good chance that if you sin against someone, you will demand sacrificial grace from them. And if they don't forgive you, then you become self-righteous and write them off. But then others will sin against you. And the people you sin against will need sacrificial grace from you. And I'm telling you, I'm not being negative, you will fail at giving them grace. You know how I know? Because I see it all the time, and I've been there myself plenty of times. So can we just, just not sweep it under the rug? Let's not be in denial. Let's just be open and honest about that so that we can deal with it, right? Here's what I've noticed. It is all too common for church people to be no different than the world, where it's dog-eat-dog, look out for yourself, number one. When someone in the church sins against us, or we think that they've sinned against us, the tendency is just to cut off the relationship. They either, they either violated a trust, or they just weren't as friendly as I hoped they would be. And so forget it. Cut off the relationship. And then maybe also bail on the church too, because that one person now represents the rest of the church. I've seen this happen a million times. Somebody in the church got burned by some other person in the church, and then the person who got burned said, that church is horrible, and they bail, because for some reason that one person represented everybody else, and then you don't struggle through it, and we become maybe self-righteous and, and condemning. And then we don't value that relationship in the church anymore. And probably we no longer value the church itself. And so here's what I've seen happens. So often in American uh, churches is that people who are a part of a church, they may even call it, that's my church. That's the one that I go to. But then something goes wrong. And then we reduce the church to like a restaurant or a coffee shop that gave us bad service. You know what I'm talking about? 
We reduce the church to like a restaurant or a coffee shop that give us bad service, and now it's time to convince others that it's bad, and so we spread the word with a bad Yelp review. Or we start a whisper campaign to warn people. You know what that is right there? That is a self-centeredness with a very short-sighted view of community. It is old-fashioned American individualism. God did not call us to be individualistic Christians. He did not call us to be independent Christians. He called us to be interdependent Christians. What that means is that we, we depend on each other through thick and thin, through the good, bad, and the ugly, because we know it's worth it. truth is, we got to get this, because we live in a broken world, and you're not going to make it on your own. We need each other. I came across this random quote the other day, and it says this, that happiness in life ultimately comes down to one thing, relationships. When your relationships are solid, you can face just about anything the world throws at you. But when your relationships are on the rocks, no matter how good everything else is going on, life stinks. Now, you may not use those words. Your language might be a little more colorful. But the heart of this, you get it, right? You probably all know something about that. You've suffered strained relationships in the church, or it's just anxiety and stress at work. It could be sickness or, or disease. People talk and smack about you behind your back. You can't pay your bills, or someone that you love has, has died. And you are amazed that as rough as it is, as heartbreaking as it, as it is, is, is often where you cry yourself to sleep, you didn't completely fall apart because you realized you had some supportive relationships. On the other hand, maybe there were times where everything in your life seemed to be almost perfect, but one key relationship went bad, and it sucked the joy out of everything else. Can you relate to any of that? Jesus himself says that life is all about relationships. Life is all about loving God and loving our neighbor. All of the law gets boiled down to that. Now, here's what I want you to do. I do this frequently so that this does not become just some theoretical exercise. I want you to think of someone that you have a relationship with right now that isn't right. A relationship that's possibly strained. It might be shattered. And it might be with your spouse. It might be one of your kids or one of your grandkids. It might be one of your parents. It might be your brother or sister. It might be somebody at work, somebody at school, somebody in the church, next door neighbor. Anybody come to mind? Maybe several someone's come to mind. Well, for, I'm sure 99% of you thought of someone. For the rest of you, if you can't think of anyone, Call the church office. We have a list of people we can put you in contact with if you want to experience a strained relationship. <laughs> well, maybe think of a relationship that's not everything it could be. 
And I want you to keep that person or those people in mind as we go through this. Now, I want to make a kind of a side note here. I don't have time to unpack this, but, but I don't want anyone here to think that I'm encouraging you to keep yourself a, a victim to abuse of any kind. Some people will hear, you know, relationships and what to do and think like, oh, I need to put myself back into this abuse. And I'll, I, I'm, I'm not talking about that, and I'm not saying don't use wise and healthy boundaries for their sake and for, for yours. So, so please don't hear that. I don't have time to unpack that now. But that's not what I'm saying here. In our text, the Apostle Paul has a relationship with some tension in it. It's his relationship with the Christians at, at Corinth. And Paul's trying to restore that relationship, knowing that they may not want to, that relationship restored. But he, he strives for it, he pursues it. And what we see in this passage it's, is a case study, if you will. We can observe what it looks like to get right with people. This is, this is a major topic in the scriptures. This passage is kind of unique in that it gives us kind of an up-close look, kind of a behind-the-scenes perspective of, of how to restore strained relationships. So we'll read our text, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16, on the screen, the back of your handout, or your scripture on your phone, starting in chapter 7, verse 2. Paul says this, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with, with great boldness toward you, but I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted, he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what Indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. 
And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. That's a long passage, but it's rich. And in this text, we see at least five things that we're called to live out when our relationships are right, aren't right. And the first thing we learn is that we are to strive for reconciled hearts. If you're following along in your your outline, that's number one. Strive for reconciled hearts. Make your goal reconciled hearts. We're usually tempted, if the relationship is strained, to put people in their place, right? And that is a value these days. I mean, there, there are articles with clickbait, like headlines and book titles, how to destroy someone. We're like, yeah, yeah. check out this person. He totally destroys her. We're like, that's awesome. I want to be like him. Paul has a different message. He has a different goal. His goal is reconciled hearts. In verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. He's saying, I don't want to just cut bait and go our separate ways. I, I want to be part of your life like it was before. I, I want an even stronger relationship because we've been through so much difficult stuff together. So, I'm going to ask you this question multiple times. And the question is, how about you? Now, I'm asking me too, all right? So this is not just me preaching at you. I'm preaching at me too. But I'm going to ask you from time to time, how about you? And when it comes to that person or people that came to mind, when relationships are messed up, what's your goal? To put them in their place? Or do you settle for less? Do you avoid them? Or do you strive for a stronger uh, love than you had before? God calls us to strive for reconciled hearts, increasing our love for each other. Those kingdom values, that's totally different than this world. And in our text, what we see is the Apostle Paul, he pulls out all the stops. When the problem first started, you know, Paul made an emergency visit to try to make things right. And then later he sent a letter pleading with them to do the right thing. And then he sent his co-worker Titus to seek reconciliation on, on his behalf. And he writes 2 Corinthians. And part of that was to seek reconciled hearts. And he's planning to, take a, to make a third visit. He is striving a reconciled heart. How about you and your your messed up relationships? Now listen, I I know not all relationships will be reconciled. You know, things can be 
just beyond broken and, and beyond destructive, and maybe someone is unrepentant and blames everything on you, and they just don't want anything to do with reconciliation. I understand that we live in a fallen and broken world, but Paul gets realistic, and he says in Romans, as far as it depends on you, okay? As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Some things you probably just won't be able to fix, but we're called to strive for reconciled hearts. Second, value people and tell them. Paul obviously values the Corinthians, and he lets them know it. Verse 3 says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. The NIV says, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And Paul, what we see in this letter and others is that he is constantly giving thanks for these messed up people. And the proof is the joy that they bring him even in the midst of all of the problems. So when he says, I went to Macedonia, I was under so much pressure, I couldn't sleep. And then in verse 5, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. And he goes on to explain that we were comforted by the good news about you, my church. And when Titus came back, verse 7, he says, Titus told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. He says that your love was so encouraging to me, I totally forgot about all my other problems. You know, the Apostle Paul, he has a spirit of a loving father. Now, a loving father. Loves his kids enough to correct them. A loving father loves his kids enough to correct them for their good. Even if it means that his kids won't understand. Even if it means that his kids will feel hurt. Even if it means that they think that the correction is unjust. Even if it means they push him away and then go tell their friend that their dad's a jerk. That is a risk a loving father takes for the good of his kids and sometimes also for the good of others. But after, if his kids express then how much they love him because they were humble enough to see their wrong, they weren't just defensive, they didn't just justify what they tried to do, if they were humble enough to see their, their dad's love and, and integrity, and if they're humble enough to be grateful for the correction, a loving father's heart will just be filled and just bursting with even more love for his children. Paul has the spirit of a loving father. And we see this also in verse 4 when he says, I have great pride in you and I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. All right, ready? How about you? Got those people in your mind? When that person or those people wrong you or someone you care about, what do you do? Can you humbly confront 
them and at the same time genuinely love them? I mean, think about that. Can you do both? Can you genuinely give thanks for them? I'm not saying easy, and maybe it's not supposed to be, but the question is, do you value them, or are you just ready to cut bait? Is your mind filled with positive thoughts about them, or is it filled with emotionally negative, negative defensiveness or criticism? So here, I have a challenge for you, an experiment. Think of the people that you have a strained relationship with. Maybe write down their name or couple names. I don't see anybody writing. <laughs> Just keep them in mind then. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray and simply thank God for the good things about them. Not just, I'll pray for them because I'm praying for, for you because you're so messed up. I, I, I want you to pray for them in such a way where you're thanking God for the good things about them. Okay? My encouragement is for you to do that today. Or maybe write them a note. Or tell them in person how much you appreciate them. God calls us to value them and tell them. That's what he's done for us. Third, speak the truth in love. This is where the rubber meets the road. For speaking the truth to work, to have any power, to have any influence, it has, you have to speak the truth in love. I've seen plenty of times people who are just pugnacious and they're just dropping like these truth bombs that don't care how insulting it, it, it sounds, as if the gospel's not offensive enough, the gospel needs help be more offended. I've seen that. And then they say, well, I'm just speaking the truth in love. I'd be unloving if I didn't drop that truth bomb on their head and make them filled with shame, tell them they're an idiot and they need to come to Jesus. You would speak the truth. Don't water it down, but you speak the truth in a loving way. Okay? And, and you might want to ask others, or even that person, if you're speaking it in a loving way because we can convince ourselves of anything. Sure, that was love. What wasn't loving about it? And you might be the only one who can't see it. You speak the truth, don't water it down, in a loving way so that that person and others can see it's obviously, obviously you love that person. So, this is what Paul does. It wasn't necessarily easy. Verse 8, he says, Even if I made you grieve, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. This isn't easy for Paul. He's like, I didn't want to hurt you because I love you, but because I love you, I had to speak the truth. It's a healthy tension. It's a tension of both truth and love. So, how about you? That person in your life? Can you speak the truth in love to them? Now listen, I'm not saying you confront 
every wrong. That'll just backfire. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sin, but the Bible also teaches love confronts sin. So how in the world do you know whether you're to cover sin or confront sin? Do you just like flip a coin or what? One way is to ask yourself, would I be confronting them just so I would feel better? I mean, I got this issue with them. It's burning a hole in my chest. I just need to tell them how I feel. And, and it's more about unloading. It's more about yourself. Or will I be confronting them because I genuinely want to help them and others and strengthen the relationship? And can I do it in a way that's obviously loving or is it obviously selfish? Ask yourself, maybe you don't want to confront them at all. So ask yourself, are they undermining and hurting the relationship that we have with each other and possibly others? If so, confront by speaking the truth in love in a loving way. And you know what? Like Paul, you got to be tor torn up. I mean, you got to be torn about this. There should be a healthy tension. What I mean is if, if you say, yeah, right on, man. Pastor Matt said confront. I have no problem confronting. I'm going to tell you how it is. If that's your tendency, something's wrong. That's truth without love. If you never confront, something's wrong. That's love without truth. And, and truth without love loses its power. And love without truth is not really love at all. So it requires humility and confidence. Fourth, always be eager to repent. The Corinthians were eager to repent. You know why? They learned that from Paul. He was eager to repent. He modeled it from this passage. doesn't tell us everything about repentance, but it highlights one thing in particular, and that one thing in particular is grief. Grief. But it's a special kind of grief. Verse 10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are two kinds of grief or sorrow. There is godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance and leads to life, but worldly grief leads to death. So what's the difference? It's the difference between a kid who's sorry he got caught lying to his parents and a kid who says, I am so sorrowful for sinning against my loving parents and my loving Heavenly Father. Worldly sorrow is only being sorrowful we got caught and now have to suffer the consequences. Godly sorrow is being sorry we sinned against the loving God and hurt a person made in his image. So, how about you? Are you eager to repent? When there's tension in a relationship, are you open to them pointing out ways that you fell short? Or, or be honest, or are you quick to deny it, quick to minimize it, quick to shift the blame, quick to tell others how lame they are for pointing it out? For the sake of discussion, let's assume they are 99% responsible for the strained relationship, and you're only 1% responsible. Have you owned up to your 1%? God holds you 100% responsible for your 
And don't get suckered into thinking, well, you did 99 things wrong. I only did this one thing wrong. It's not a repentant heart. When you see and own your wrong, do you experience godly grief or worldly grief? Does your grief lead to repentance that leads to, to life? God calls you to that. He wants the best for you. Repentance leads to life. We're called to be eager to repent. Now, I could just say, there you go. There are four things you should do. Now, get to it. Bible said it. You do it. That settles it. You know what? If I did that, it would mess you up. And you probably wouldn't even realize it. I'm going to make, how far, Josh, how far am I into my sermon? Like an hour? 20 minutes or so? Somewhere in between? I want to make a side note here. I want to be careful how how I say this, but I believe it's too important not to to address it. Most Christians, if we ended right there, would think, there we go, we heard some preaching today. That's all I need. And you know what? Most preaching out there ends right there. Here's what the Bible says to do. Do it. Here's what the Bible says not to do. Don't do it. And maybe let's pretend that this was my best sermon ever. It's not. But let's pretend that it was. And I told you about somebody I knew that was going through some heartache, and you found most people found themselves weeping. Or I told you about a, 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 a friend of mine who did something dumb, or I, or I did something dumb, and I made you all laugh. Or, or I told you about, you know, some missionary or something uh, who is at odds with somebody else in the mission field and how they got together and, and, and you're inspired and, and you're going to go and you're going you're gonna to put this into action. So you laughed, you cried, you were inspired. I had funny video clip of, of me doing funny stuff, whatever that is. And, and you laughed, you thought it was great. All right, I quoted your favorite author or whatever. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But here's the thing. I could give my best presentation ever with a bunch of things that are emotionally moving and throw a few Bible verses in there, and you can walk out saying, that was a good sermon, and not even notice that it's completely and totally missing the gospel, which is the power of God. And most people accept that as if there's nothing wrong with it. And here's what I know. If somebody preaches a sermon like that, if I preached, say I preached a sermon like that, ended right here, and you were talking to, um, I don't know, Tom Wing, you went to lunch. By the way, if you ask him, he'll take you to lunch. (laughs) He takes everybody to lunch. Just kidding. You go to lunch, and you said, man, I really love Pastor Matt's sermon today. I laughed, I cried, I was inspired. 
he gives some really good advice about how to get along with my wife or my husband or whatever. And if Tom said, well, he didn't really preach the gospel, he said, well, normally when Matt preaches, he, he leaves us with no hope, no hope either in salvation or growing in sanctification, become more like Jesus. He didn't leave our only hope as Jesus. He did not present Jesus as the only hope we have for salvation, but also in sanctification to become like Jesus. So say, Tom said, Matt normally does that. And you say, what do you mean? I was Christian. He said Jesus like 50 times. He talked about Jesus' sacrificial death on, what a great example that was, you know. If we could follow Jesus as our example, I mean, it was gospel all over the place. No, it's not. That's not gospel preaching. That's moralism. Now, there's nothing wrong with morals. Morals are good. Moralism is when, it it is self-righteous religion, and it's up to you. Gospel-centered preaching means that we are desperate for Jesus. And when we see who he is and what he's done, then there's something powerful changes in our hearts. Then and only then can we begin to live these things out. Some people just put the cart before the horse and messes everything up. I hear about people who, who, who move away, they go to another church, and I know that they're not preaching the gospel there. And it's the only church in town. They didn't even consider that before they moved. I want you to know the difference. I want to make sure you are very familiar with the difference. And it's not a small deal. It is a big deal. Some of the biggest churches have effective preaching, meaning that everybody loves them, powerful speakers, really good presentation, but no gospel, but that's okay. They had smoke machines for worship, and the pastor was really funny. All right. So I can't stop there. Sorry. I won't be long. The high point, the main point, is do business with the cross. It's my last point, and it's the primary point, the most important point. We, we, it's what we see throughout 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. On the cross, God died for your sin of not striving for reconciliation, for, not, for your sin of not valuing people above yourself, your sin of not speaking the truth in love, and your sin of being, not being eager to repent, and my sin in all of that as well. He died for all of that, and he gives us his perfect guiltless record. That means that your screwed up record is wiped out and he doesn't just leave you with a clean slate. His perfect record becomes yours forever. Forever. And then we are perfectly reconciled to God which enables us to be reconciled to each other. That is the gospel, and that is the only hope that you have. You do business with the cross, 
What's that mean? When you do business with someone, you make a trade. They give you a product or service, you give them money. Doing business with the cross means we go to the cross and we make a trade with Jesus. We confess our sin and he takes our sin upon himself and exchange, he gives us his guiltless record and his loving relationship with the Father. What a deal, right? That's grace. That's repentance. Making a trade with Jesus that leads to salvation and life. The Christian life starts by doing business with the cross, and the Christian life continues by doing business with the cross, looking to Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. And as you continue to apply the gospel, the truth of Jesus to your life, the truth of the cross to your life, what happens is that your pride gets replaced with humility because you realize that you were so helplessly lost that Jesus had to die for you. How in the world could you possibly be prideful after that when you realize that you were so sinful, God the Son had to die for you. How could you have any pride at all? But then your fear gets replaced with confidence. It gets replaced by the power of God's grace because you realize that that God so loved you that Jesus was glad to die for you. When you do business with a cross, you'll have humility and courage to do the ministry of reconciliation. Otherwise, your pride will get in the way or your fear will keep you from doing anything at all. And let me tell you something. You may be inspired by the gospel to do these things and there's a good chance you will not succeed. But because you keep in mind who Jesus is and what he's done, you will know that you are loved and approved in Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. That is the gospel. And without it, there is no reconciliation. That is the power of the gospel. And therefore, it's got to be the main point. That is what makes us a community of grace a new city on a hill that glorifies King Jesus to a watching world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?